You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is some of my best friends are Kabbalists, and I'm actually, I'm Avram Kivalevich, and I'm here with one of my best friends, really, uh, someone that I had the schuss to know when I was in my teenage years, and we've kept up over the years, and I'm with Harav Nosenota Glick, who is a Kabbalist. He's actually someone who has lectured far and wide on Kabbalah, who has been living in Eretz Yisrael, I think, for uh, probably for the better part of 30, 35 years, uh, and has established himself as a very well-known presence in the world of uh, mystical literature, someone that has been... Uh, uh, respected, someone that has been, uh, his ideas have been asked for, and he has written, um, and he has been part of really, a, a, of, of the understanding of mysticism, and perhaps the resurgence of mysticism in, we know, in the academic world in Eretz Yisrael. So, Rav uh, thank you so much for being with us today. It is a, uh, indeed an honor to stare upon your countenance in Eretz Yisrael. Thank you for being so kind and for welcoming me into your to your show and for uh, giving me the chance to get a little bit of uh, um, get out of my Dalaramas. Well, I, you know, I, I mean, just things that you said. I happen to be very much a retiring and, and uh, yeah, I like my I like my private life private. I keep to myself most of the time. I you know, some people know me. If there's anybody studying Kisve Ha'ari in in uh, Ashkelon. And, Probably has something to do with me. Right, and yes, and I and this is something I know. Again, we were we were um, we became good friends when I was uh, 16 years old. Actually, I met you when I was 15 years old, and we've known each other for uh, over 45 years, really. And I know that um, the um, Kabbalah has been something that has always uh, appealed to you, something that you've been drawn to. I know that it's something that um, that means a lot. It isn't just some sort of a trophy that you can have on your shelf. Uh, you, you, you don't view it in any way, shape, or form as just some sort of scholastic exercise. I know it's something that 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 that, that really penetrates to the heart of who you are as a person. Um, I, I'll tell you one thing before we get started. Uh, on, on today's discussion, I once had an all-nighter with uh, Rav Moshe Idel, <laughs> Professor Moshe Idel. Um, we spent all night talking, and uh, he had come to Chicago uh, to speak at Spurtis, and uh, it was one of really the, the the most energizing evenings I've ever had, evenings into morning that I've ever had. He's so approachable and so wonderful. And one of the things I asked uh, Moshe Dell, who was like the preeminent, I don't know if you, maybe perhaps it's not true anymore, but the preeminent scholastic uh, sage of Kabbalah, he said to me, I asked him, I said, what does it take to be a, to really understand this Chachma that we know the Zohar says, Lav Komochel and what is it really dependent on? And he said to me, it's living a life of Kedusha. If you live a life of Kedusha, then you are able to 
comprehend and take this into you. Otherwise, it sort of sounds strange and it sounds like concepts that are just flying in the air that have no reality. And of course, the person who was saying this was someone who was not known to live a life of Kedusha outwardly. Someone who actually was known just as an intellectual scholar. And yet he understood that for it to really mean something, it really has to, uh, it, it, you need to actually submit to regimen of holiness to be able to really perceive what's going on. I'm sure you agree with that, correct? I mean, there's... As a matter of, as a matter of fact, I can tell you that, that there is a secret subcurrent of actual yearning in the part of the the uh, scholastic Mukubalim, uh, or the Maximia, that's the, improperly stated, in, in the sc- scholastic, um, I don't know, well, investigators of, of Kabbalah. And it goes back actually to uh, Gershom Sholem himself, who was, was famously a non-believer in anything religious or, uh, or, or mystical. He once famously made the statement that, uh, that um, Kabbalah is nonsense, but the study of nonsense is, is, uh, is, um, is research. And I said something along those lines. But there was a period in his life when, for one thing, he actually believed that the Zohar was authentic. And so it actually goes back to the time of the Tanaim in some way. Uh, and in which he actually tried to do some Abu Lafian uh, meditations and he began to feel something. And by the time he managed to you know, move to Israel before, before World War II and, and get himself, get himself settle, settled, he dropped all of those, all of those things. You know, so he was, what drew him to the field was, was a kind of a spiritual yearning, it seems, in which he even had some intention of, of uh, fulfilling. Um, but then he realized that, you know, if you want to be in the, in the university world, you cannot be a spiritual person. You, know, you have to be scientific and, and, and therefore he kind of morphed into this scientific character. And then he repudiated a lot of things that he believed in. Uh, well, you know, Edel said to me that, um, that Sholem actually operated like in a double life and that underneath that scholastic veneer, he actually still remained an intense believer in what Kabbalah could do in transporting. And in fact, uh, he talked about that Sholem used various methods, even late in his life, to try to reach Ruach HaKodesh. And that despite what was written in that book, Eight and a Half Mystics, I think it was, where Sholem talks about learning Kabbalah without any clothes on, um, that, that, that he deeply regretted that, that, that article. But that Sholem actually remained, even towards the end, someone who, who was taken by the power, the kedusha of, of what Chochmas Hasoyed is. And, and, and part of what Idel did was speak in Spurtis without a yarmulke, but then get up every morning and go to Yeshiva's Basel and what learn Bechavrusa. What in heck is Spurtis? Sounds- Spurtis is, again, Spurtis is a, is a typical um, uh, Jewish college that really does no Jewish people in it, but is was was funded by a lot of rich Jews, and is still the way I actually get into my Barilan. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I get into Eitzrah Chachma through my Spurtis uh, uh, membership. So it's a very worthy, um, a very worthy institution just for that. 
so many people, so many, again, I only pay $50 a, a year and I, and I get the Eitzra Chachma. But the point is, I, I, that, that's where Brian Sherwin, I don't know if you've heard of him, Brian Sherwin brought, uh, who's written on, on, on in, in, in a number of science, you know, scholastic Kabbalistic articles. Brian Sherwin was able to get uh, Moshe Dell to come. And, you know, Moshe Dell spoke clearly without a yarmulke. And he said to me that he sees his purpose as bringing Kabbalah to the greater world, although every morning, as I said, he, I don't know if he went to the mikveh before he learned, but he spent hours learning in, in Shiva's Basel in the old, I guess it's near the old city. So, um, and I think that, uh, which I think speaks a lot for, as I said, some of my best friends are Kabbalists. You don't know. Part of being a Makubo and part of living that, that, that life of feeling the hasog of Ruach HaKadosh within you Part of that is to hide that from the rest of the world, as the Baal Shem Tov and others have taught us, right? That there is, uh, so don't judge a book by its cover, is sort of what we're, is part of what we're, we can be, we can say, right? Uh, and on that, you know, on that note, let's... The hiding part. Huh? The hiding part, right? You know, like, one of the, interestingly, when COVID hit, you know, so we all started hiding out at home, but it's really nothing new for me. I'm, I've, I've worked from home for uh, for uh, the past I don't know, 25 years, really, since I since I finished being. I was once upon a time I was Rav Moshav, as you know, uh, but after that, you know, we came to Ashkelon, and here's my apartment, and this is my little castle, and I was doing safros, so I didn't get a chance to get out of the house very much, and and that was you know that was my life, my little my little home, and the, and the people who know me. Uh, so I'm actually pretty good at uh, pretty good at hiding out. Well, yes. Well, I'm, and I'm very, I count myself as uh, one of the Zochim that my son, who's living in Eretz Israel now, and you're Shalai Mirakaitish, uh, where's the Tillin that uh, you wrote for him, that you wrote those Parshias for him? So I clearly uh, appreciate the Kedusha and that part of you that that that, that is primed for Kedusha. So now that we've talked about our props, we've talked about a little bit about what it means to be a Makubal even in today's life and to study. Just before we go, because I think, I think this is relevant. Go ahead. Okay. So this is, this is part of my story. One of the things that I learned is that our pasts are very much a part of our present. And I'm not just saying this on the personal level. It's like, you know, the self that I was as a child is, is, is present in my psyche right now and that's that's true but i mean a far distant past you know things that things that come to you through your family through your roots through your through your uh, through your genes i suppose if you want to put it that way or through your spiritual genetics you know these we have access to things that come to us from our you know from our past and and many people would say particularly you know that that uh, there is a segula that it is passed on genetically amongst uh, amongst Jewish people as a whole. Um, so, the longer I've come along in life, the more that I've I've uh, become to realize that that's absolutely true. I mean, you know, is 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 tremendous. And I happen to know, you know, kind of recently, the past couple of years, I was learning a bit more about my father's family, um, and the fact is that my grandfather was in Bukubal. I don't know about my great-grandfather, but there's something, there's something that runs in, in the line. 
And I can tell you that when I was a little kid, okay, I had some experiences. I'm not gonna, it's not like you know lift the kushari shamayim or anything or anything like that. But but I had I had certain feelings and certain intuitions. Later on, when I became later on when I was a teenager, when you know the period of time that we first met, um, I was I understood Teresa Balsham. Now, I didn't, doesn't mean I understood the full implications of it, you know, the, all the terminology, but I think, you know, the core, the core feeling that a human being is built for dveikus with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. and this dveikus is experiential, and the Torah and mitzvahs are vehicles to, to, uh, to bring you to that realization or, 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 or to that uh, sensation, if I can make, call it that. This I, I understood really, really, really well. You know, I understood the idea of past, present, and future being being basically an extension. So that when you say something like, you know, schusavis, so schusavis isn't like you know God sitting up in the sky with a calculator saying, okay, you know, uh, Avram Avinu put away 150,000 million bitcoins of schus, and, and right now you've been using it up, but here you get you, know, you get one bitcoin of schus in in. in, uh, in 1974 or something like that. And it's not, it's not like that. It's that there is a tr- transcendent aspect in which past, present, and future are interrelated and interconnected. And what you, what you take is, is, is an extension of your, of your ancestors' experiences. So, you know, it's, okay. So I, so I, um, I, I understood those things. And the one thing that I didn't understand was how unusual those ideas were. And so you can imagine, I was, I was, I felt like I was a very weird person. And other people told me that I was a very weird person. And I was simply, you know, like, like you know, everybody, everybody, everybody wonders about, about, about how Schus always comes down into the, into, into the present. And everybody has these ideas of dveikus and, and desire to cleave to Hashem. And the question is, how can I cleave to Hashem when I am when I'm a, a basically a, a finite being? Whether I'm a finite being because I have a body, or whether I have a finite being because I have a discrete soul, whatever you want to make out of that. And what is a soul anyway? And here I am, you know, 15, 16 years old, thinking about these things. And yeah, sure, people thought I was bizarre. And that hurt, that hurt me a lot, by the way, because because when people think you're crazy, you know, the first thing that you ask yourself is, is am I crazy? I would say also, uh, just to inform our listeners, and I hope we'll get many, that you were thinking about this as you were in Miami Beach. I mean, you were a child. And again, part of Miami Beach and what I discovered when I was 16, when I was studying there for four years, is that it's almost like a dreamland. You have a place where there is no winter, where it's it's warm and beautiful and, and there's, there's, there's grass and trees and flowers. And you're surrounded by healthy young men and women, right? And here you were, the way I remember, uh, you know, with Pais, uh really looking like 
a, a sort of a yeshiva shafrum boy surrounded by a bunch of kids that were basically enjoying, you know, a, a, a cerebitic uh, Ganadin, you know, where everything was, uh, that, that was, that's a pretty hard, that was a pretty hard countenance and ideas to keep when it was around you was, you know, let's go to the Y100 concert on South Beach and check out uh, everything that's going on there. Well, you know, back back in those days, by the way, there were no Y100 concerts in South Beach, whatever that even means. But, but well, I uh, actually went to. Well, I I want to disagree with you. There was a Y100 concert in 1976 that we in the yeshiva, you didn't go, but we went during Ben Asdarim. Myself and two, one of them was a very chashava rov somewhere in the United States, and another person who's also a very chashava Talmud Chacham and a Marbitz Taira. We walked from the yeshiva down to, it was an Elozman, and we were there at that Y100 concert out in South Beach, and I was saying to myself, I can't believe where I am. I am in the ultimate bacchanalian, hedonistic center of the universe. I forgive my ignorance. I mean, I know quite a bit about, like, you know, 19, uh, 1980s music. And stuff. Y100 was a band? Y100 was actually a radio station. Radio station. Y100 was a radio station in Miami, and they were, and, and, and we from the yeshiva, we said, yeah, let's go down there and check everything out. And all I can tell you is, is that our eyes were popping out <laughs> based on that. And I can imagine, so therefore I sort of have an idea of what it's like for you, Rabbi Gluck. Uh, Rav Nelson, to have been surrounded by what's called Klippas, Tumas, Machshavas Royas, I mean, everybody had girlfriends, and here you were uh, trying in some way to, to, to move towards a mystical conception of life that, that was, as Moshe Dale says, built on a Kedusha, which is something that I think is... Hardwired into me too, because I didn't have any. I didn't have any choice about whether to think whether to think about these things. You know, a certain a certain phase happened in my life, and I thought about them a lot. And you know, it's not it's not that I'm such a you know great spiritual character, but but that's you know once again that's where the idea of schusavus comes in, because sometimes you get stuff that you're not you know you're not really for you're not you're not built for it necessarily. I really really, if I had had my way, I would have simply been a ordinary high school kid with a girlfriend with a car with you know part of the part of the problem of course is my parents were never well uh, at least at that period of time my parents were not well off enough <coughs> excuse me, you know to supply me with uh, with the kind of things that uh, that I could use to pass in that kind of in that kind of cover so like one way or the other you know if, if you're if you're talking in in whatever Whatever you call the firm community back in back in Miami Beach in the in the seventies, um, I was I was branded as strange and weird because I thought about things that nobody ever thought about. And if and if if I'm, if I'm out in the in the fry world, you know, I had my pimples and I had my screwy haircut, which my father kind of imposed upon me, and felt alienated that way. So it really made me into. I mean, you know, in the end, I just tried to accept my lot in life and say, okay, this is me. And I'm a very paradoxical person because I'm very sensuous and and, uh, and I have a definite tendency towards taivadikite and, and I love my taivadism. Which is probably why the, Besht, you know, the Beshtian uh, uh, approach to, to the mystical world is the one that you felt that you could really navigate and uh, because, because, you know, unlike some of the other branches of 
of mystical thought, the asceticism is one of the things that is sort of downplayed in uh, Baal uh mysticism. In fact, it's sort of like transformed, as the Magadim is rich and others told us, you actually transform that central, that central aspect of yourself uh, and you recognize within it the meat of Ava, the meat of Chesed, or the meat of the Rabboni Shalom itself that's sort of coursing through you. And even though the Machshavos come to you because of a, uh, of a comely wench that might uh, stride past you, what you're able to do, if you really know what Baal Shem Tavchsidus is about, is to be able to sort of like morph that into something holy and uh, ultra-significant and actually lead you away from there and actually going uh, from the Bira, uh, you know, from the Bira Mikta to the Igra Roma, um, right? So I, I think You're that... You're absolutely spot on with that. I mean, if, not, if not for the Baal Shem Tov's approach and the, and the kind of anti, uh, anti-asceticism that lies in it and the idea that everything can be uplifted, there was, there was no way that I could have lived with myself. Because no, I, I was... I, it was such an internal contradiction on that. On that, yeah. I mean, but in my deepest heart, what I really just wanted to do was an ordinary teenager. But like, now, and, and I actually, I actually feel very much about what you're saying, and and I want to contrast it to what we know in sort of like the Western Christian world. And this is really going to get into, I think, the topic that I really wanted to talk to you about. In the Western Christian world, the idea, you know, we all have stories. You hear stories about people who who are who had normal, regular childhoods. Um, and then they got the calling to become a priest. Um, and of course, that meant celibacy and devotion to God. And you would hear that there was some event that occurred, some sort of um, important moment, some sort of um, heart-wrenching moment, or even a, a traumatic moment that somehow they heard the calling of God. And, and, and in fact, that was considered standard um, a standard way to get into a monastery or to become part of a, a seminary is to get the call. And the call was some sort of stark moment. We don't really, you know, in, in, in terms of uh, a commitment to pursue uh, a life of mysticism, we don't really hear that idea of the call. I mean, it does show up, of course, in Sefer Shmuel, where Shmuel gets spoken to by God as a young, as a young child. But really, it's not the call. It's sort of like what you say. It's almost like your 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 grandfather, uh, your grandfather's tviya for was sort of like happening within you. It's not like there was some great moment, right? There wasn't any great moment like that. And and, and I think, I mean, I actually I have I have a memory of a certain kind of moment, which goes back very far. This I don't know I don't know how old I was. I, I couldn't have been more than eight or nine. I guess, and, and um, we we drove up. My father would love to drive, you know, so we had to go to a wedding in Montreal. I believe that's where the wedding was. Um, it was a wedding of one of my older cousins. And um, so this was a Hasidic Shasatmer type wedding, but there were certain things that happened, like the, the, the circle dancing. And in particular, there was one thing that I quite remember. It was all the Alta Hasidim that were doing a circle dance. And they were kind of locked in together, and they, they weren't jumping up and down. It wasn't very exciting, but they were but they were singing, and the circle was proceeding, and, and the, the chas and the kala were in the middle, and bam, I felt something, you know. And we want to call it energy or 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 or, uh, or um, chi, you know. But I absolutely, I absolutely felt 
had a vacuous experience as a, as a very young child watching that. And there was something that clicked about circles. Circles are endless. Time is endless. Future, past, present, it's all here. You know, and that clicked for me. And I, I remember it very, very distinctly. So if that's, if that's kind of a conversion experience, uh, maybe yes, maybe no. Um, I, don't, I don't think there was like a specific single. I think you're right. There's no, there's no specific single experience. It's just like something that, you, something that grows in you slowly over a period of time. <clears throat> and to tell you, and to be to be honest, it never got to the point where I was really ever willing to renounce my sensual self or my or my fleshly life, okay, because of this. It wasn't. I never accepted the proposal. It was either an, it was an either or, but I I knew when I had my if you want to say what my conversion, which didn't really happen as a discrete event, but. The contents of my conversion was: I have to do something with this mess. Okay, I have to. I have to figure this out, and I have to make sure that it comes out on side. You know, on the, on the good side, the sitra de kedusha, not the sitra achra. Right, and I committed myself to that, and and it's a very, very, very long, painful process. I mean, they, 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 I can, you know, I, <clears throat> I can tell you probably I finally got it right. Maybe, maybe you know, twenty or thirty years ago on some on some level. And I, I, I did a lot of Hasidic things when I was I was uh, I was mishabir to tzaddikim, you know. Um, I have a I, I had at one time a very close relationship with Belzer Rebbe, by the way, who was kind of a relative of mine. Present Belzer Rebbe, you're talking about the present Belzer Rebbe. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, you know, his mother his mother was a glick. Uh, is that so? Is that so? Yes. Yeah. So. Well, I know. Listen, his grandfather, of course, was the Saraf. His grandfather was the uh, was uh, Ravaran, right? So that's the uh, that was the the amazing tzaddik who who uh, who came to Eretz Yisrael after the war. Um, you know, uh, you know, thinking about uh, you know the idea of 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 trying to live a mystical life, I I'm, I'm reminded by something Rav Tzaddik writes in his um, his Sefer Sefer Azichroinos. Which, uh, by the way, Gershon Shalom uh, mentions as one of the great historical Kabbalistic works that describes what it really means to be a Makubal. Uh, Gershon Shalom mentions it in one of his um, in one of his uh, one of, uh, prefaces to one of his books. And uh, uh, Rav Tzaddik writes there that to study Sifrei Kabbalah is not being a Makubal. To study it, and but really, what based on you really need to get a hisgalus within you. So I don't want to, in other words, the idea of committing yourself to that part of Chochmas Anister and studying Soydas uh, HaTayra and trying to understand things is, is, is the very first step. Then you, of course, you need to find a Rebbe who can explain things to you over and above the actual written words. But you really can only call yourself a Makubal in that sense when a hisgalus happens within you. And that's why Rav Tzodik says that it's it's me'en amari cheskel. Something happens through this process, which is a very strict process before you can get there. And it was very well guarded. But you become a makubal when it's real and that you actually get a haifov, uh, an aspect of Ruach HaKadosh within you, where it isn't just I understand what all these letters mean in the Eitz Chaim. 
It's not just that, uh, it, what, it, what it means is, is that there's something that occurs within your mind and soul to perceive. And what happens to you is, is, is exactly the same type of element that occurred to all the Nevi'im. And therefore, he says, you know, that's what makes him a kubal. Um, and you need to go through those those processes. And but just someone who's who's an lecturer who can explain Kabbalah, now that wouldn't call him a Kabbalist. Maybe you can call him a Kabbalist, but he wouldn't yet be part of what we call the Masora of Mukubolim. And that Masora is, I think, uh, Nelson, something that is timeless. You are transported beyond where you are in this period of Zman, and you become part of Lahakas Hanavim because that's really what's being this gobble within you. Um, Absolutely. And, and, I, and again, I, without you, know, you uh, referring to your own experiences in that way, and um, you know, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, what we know about Mekubolim and, and what has come down from the Kabbalistic perspective concerning what's going to be happening. Again, we're recording here on uh, the 23rd, but tomorrow, uh, when we're talking here about tomorrow night, there is the uh, um, the the what's called Nittelnacht, where uh, many people who are from the Chassidish Welt will not learn Torah, will not be oisik, especially in you know specific <laughs> acts of, of some sort of Torah mitzvahs, because they're afraid of the yanika of the Torah there to the Sitrachra. Um, so would you like to talk a little bit about that, since that is something that um, seems to come straight out of the Baal Shem Tov I don't know if it has uh, sources earlier than that. Why don't you t- talk a little bit about that from your own perspective? Okay. Well, as I, as I understand it, okay, there's um, a major difference between the way Mekubalim um, approach the problem of other religions or, or, or paganism or anything like that. There's a sub- substantial difference. Um, if you were a, I would say, let's say a regular rationalistic type, okay? Uh, certainly, if you, certainly if you were a Shimon and Referral Hirsch type, Yeke, then the other, the other deities are simply false. As for some reason, people got it in their stupid heads to bow down to statues and to believe in, to believe that for a period of time, temporarily or maybe permanently, a certain statue was inhabited by an entity, which is powerful enough. And when you talk to, when you pray to the statue, the statue or the entity in the statue can do something, can do something for you. And and that's the you know that's the basis of paganism. Um, Christianity would also be a similar mistake. Uh, rather egregious because it it, uh, it grafts some elements of the truth onto the onto the falsehoods. So in a, in a way, it's a bit more dangerous than than uh, than paganism. Now, now paganism never really represented a problem uh, to Jews. You know, they're being pagans for as long as we've been around. Most pagans, it seems, uh, didn't like us very much because the. You know, the pagan mindset is that if you don't have an image or a statue or an object that you're worshiping, you have no God. So we, we kind of got developed the reputation of being godless people. 
So, I mean, how can you trust the people that don't have any God? You say, well, we have, we have God. Of course we have God. We have, no, but where, you know, where is he? Where can you see him? Where is he? What are you talking about? And, and the, the idea that your God had to be visible in order to be meaningful, okay, was very, very ingrained amongst, amongst uh, the general population. Jews, very, very painfully, by the way, got past that. And you know how painful that, that, that process was. If you read any of the Nabiim, you know, you may buy a Shani, the, the temptation of Vaidazar and the, the, the lengths at which you had to go to get away from a Vaidazar was a horrible, horrible Nisayon that you could barely, that you could barely manage as the Gemara and Sanhedrin also, you know. And, um, but once, you know, once we got around to you may buy a Shani, that seemed to more or less have been, have been resolved. Maybe because Anshay Knesset said, go to kill the Yates of Horror for a Vaidazar, let me know. But but uh, we were already kind of like out of that, you know. But but nations of the world, hey, you know, they were somewhat avodazar. The type of avodazar was somewhat weakened by them also. But but they were still but they were still into it, and they tended to perceive us as being godless people. But there wasn't in the end there wasn't that much conflict. You know, pagans looked at us as strange characters, but you know, it's not as if they had any particular beef against us. You know, every nation has its own versions of the deities. These guys believe in invisible deities. They're idiots, but who cares? Okay. When you get to when you get to Christianity, right? The thing the thing changes substantially. That Christians look at us and they say that we are false. We are imitation. We've lost it. We're 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 no longer the chosen people. We're as a matter of fact, we're we're the antithesis to the chosen people. We're the rejected people. On the other hand, you know, we look at we look at the Christians and we say the Christians believe that they're the new Am Yisrael because they because they, they took this you know they, they took this guy and they made him into a deity. And so for, from our point of view, that's these are two antithetical concepts which are much more in conflict because they are so close to each other in a way. It's like, you know, steal my thunder, okay, or or um, you know, like a veg, like a like a war that could break out between vegetarian hamburgers and beef hamburgers. You know, they're both hamburgers. They're, they're, they're both tasty, and they and so the competition is much more is much more uh, severe, and, and the and the feelings are much more acrimonious. And the question is how how you know. So if it's us if it's us against paganism, that's that's old hat. You know, we know what to say. But when it's, when it's us against our twin. Then what happens? What happens then? You know, how do you how do you how do you explain that? And the great irony is is that Yidden were waiting for Mashiach to come because you know Alpaim Shana Taihu Alpaim Shana Taira and Alpaim Shana Yemaisa Mashiach. So so the the, the Yemaisa Mashiach would have been presumably around the time between uh, you know between um, you know BC and and, and the common era, BC and you know and the common era. It would be the year 240, right? The year common era 240, right? That was the yeah, year 4,000. Right, that would, that, would be, that would be the end. Now, the year, the year 240 would be 4,000, and 1240 would be, we call 5,000. 5,000, right, which is, you know, which is also a pretty heavy, pretty heavy day. We're supposed to move out of Midas Laid into Midas, into Midas Yisoy. But the great pers- persecutions of Jewish people, you know, by, by the Roman Empire, they started somewhat before that, but... Um, you know, it was, but the, it, it was but a rat. the emergence of Christianity as a as a as a power in the Roman Empire really coincides very closely with that with that uh, with that line. 
you know, Constantine converted to Christianity, I don't know, what, 3, 310 or something? Right, the Council of Nicaea is 312, but you're right, it was, it's, it's within what's considered Yemos HaMashiach, right? So... It puts the Gemara in a much in a much greater light, you know. You know, um, or something like that. You know, people were people were expecting Mashiach. People were really expecting Mashiach. And what did we get? Not only didn't Mashiach come, we got the anti-Mashiach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and incidentally, one of the reasons why the Roman Empire is associated with Esau is because Esau is literally our twin. And he delegitimizes us. We're, you know, you're, I'm, the, I'm the real Bechor. No, you're the phony Bechor. No, I'm the real Bechor because, because I have some sort of spiritual quality that you don't have. Yeah, but I was born first. You know? right. and, and that's how, you know, and that's, that's how it goes. So, so it's not Bechinam. Okay, it's not for nothing that, that, that Judaism versus Christianity is also Yaakov versus Esau. It, it maps out quite perfectly. And... Um, you know, and sometimes when you when you when you read the Aesop and Yaakov story, you you begin to you know you begin to get the impression that maybe maybe somehow or another there's a breach here that can be that can be healed. Sure, sure, yeah. and I, I think modern readings of that story uh, clearly indicate that the positivity of what Aesop could represent, Aesop's head, even according to the Medrash, being in the uh, Marsa Machpela. Right. Okay. So there, yeah. So there's a lot of you know there's a lot of hinting going on over here on what I think is the at least the possibility that since we are twins, you know, and we don't seem neither of us really seem to be going anywhere anytime anytime soon that that there is some sort of eschatological resolution that can that can do something with this. I mean, this is up to Akadosh Baruch because I don't think any human being is smart enough to figure to figure the way out. So, um, so, so I think just to just to jump in here for a minute, I think what, you, what you're getting at um, is that the that the reason why we are so concerned about a day that Christianity, um, you know, plugs in its battery and feels their energy, which is on Christmas, despite the fact that it's not really the day Jesus was born or not. But since there's so much energy to what's considered the Christian morality and the Christian goodness. So therefore, it's very threatening to us because it's a day that, uh, in a way, uh, extends their power, which is a bastardized version of our morality, of, of the goodness that really was inherent in the Torah, the Jewish morality of taking care of the Yosem and the Almona, the idea of, uh, of not might being right, but the idea of an actually uh, a just society, a society built on caring for everyone, which is really, again, Jesus distilling the essence of certain aspects uh, of Jewish law and thought. And since that's where Christianity is sort of striding strongly, they sort of are taking, as you said, our thunder, uh, an aspect of what we have and leaving us leaving us to be sort of, and, and, and maybe that's the reason why there's this sense of tension. But, 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 but I think it's more than that, right? It's, it's almost the idea that if we do learn Torah, if we do just not register what's going on, somehow its tendrils will, 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 will somehow stab into us and siphon from us some of that strength and cause Christianity to remain strong. So how do you understand that from a Kabbalistic perspective? So that actually really goes to the core of the, the, the core of the distinction. Okay. And that is what is, what is the relationship, let's say between, 
the Kedusha and the Chitoinim. I mean, Chitoinim is a much more neutral word than Klipot or, 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 or Sitrach. Or Sitrach is really, is really heavily, heavily negatively tainted. Okay? But if you, if you imagine that there's a beam of light right, that, that comes into the world, okay? then one of the aspects of coming into the world means that you're going to have flakes. I mean, it can be some kind of dandruff. You know, when something, when something comes into the world, it also changes the world that it's coming into. And, and you develop a situation where everything that comes in develops a reflection. Now, there's a very big theoretical or theological question about how the Kedusha can actually sustain a, a reflection of itself. You know, how does that, how does that happen? Because, because to say this in, in, in Mekubal terms, right? Every, every appearance of Kedusha is a Yichud. And a Yichud is a Yichud of, of Zun. So it's a Yichud of, of, of a male and a female uh, aspect in, 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 uh, in HaKadosh Baruch Hu's Midos. Okay? Whenever you have a Yichud of that kind, you know, there is a, there's a, an effect where the, let's call it the energy, I don't like the word energy, but let's say the or or the chiyas, the chiyut of the, of the yichud can somehow leak out and be absorbed by, by the other side, right? And how, how that could possibly happen is a major, is a major Philosophical issue, which is kind of technical, and I don't, I don't even know if I can adequately answer that because if it's all in the in the midst of Oilam Atzilus, so Oilam Atzilus has no opposite, right? So there's no, so there's there's no possibility of a of a unique. But then you know, but then on the other hand, um, insofar as the events in Oilam Atzilus have some sort of Representation in the world, in the in the in the worlds of, uh, let's say, in the, in the in the natural world or the ordinary or the world of ordinary reality. Okay. It's not it's not as if it's invisible. It at least has to. If it's going to be in the world, it has to be visible to that world. And in the act of being visible, it also makes itself vulnerable because if it's visible, then I see it my way, you see it your way, and and as uh, as the Gemara says by 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 Titus, you know, when Titus walked into the Kodesh Kodeshim, even though there was no R in there. You know, but the but the the Kruvim were embracing, and I think and I think he made a kind of a lewd comment. I know you you, you know Gemara's you know you remember Gemara's better than I do. Gemara you know, says made, that actually the Roman soldiers came and said, "Ru, you know this Uma that was supposedly so far in Kedusha, look what they are Isaac in, right? Because the right, Kruvim yeah. were like were 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 children, were like male and female children." That and looked were, like that they were they were nubile young children embracing each other seemingly in erotic so, ways, right? And, and so we and you know and so we think this is ah this is Judaism this religion of, of an abstract deity that nobody can see and we walk into the holy of holies and it's all about sex, right? So you can you can see that even in the act of being in the world, things become visible. So so what flakes off is not the same thing as what is as as the truth, but it's a flake off of the truth all the same. And that means that means from an operational point of view, don't be surprised if the Catholic Church has saints who have experienced miracles or who have done miracles. Don't be surprised because everything that is here flakes off and becomes 
there, and it's and it becomes sitra achra. So we have to do our part by refraining from learning Torah on Nittelnacht, because Nittelnacht is the the shayrish of all of this of the of the whole Unika thing, right? And and, and uh, if if we block learning Torah on Nittelnacht, then at least we're not going to be feeding the other side more than they already have. Generally, by the way, is the, the, I mean the easiest explanation to explain how a Unika happens is just to blame the poor little Nebuch. I mean, I, this is this is me speaking here. I, you know, the, you know, blame the poor teenagers that, that are all full of you know frustrations and and, being and, you know, and can't you know and, and can't you know can't control themselves. Okay, yeah, they're the blame for everything because you know that's that the ultimate unique to the chitzonim is is some kind of some kind of pagama uh, bricks as they as. Which is sort so, of think, sort of sort of the opposite of what the Zohar says Avram and Sora were doing. In other words, Avram and Sora, who although she was infertile, and Avram also was not able to, uh, his motility rates were definitely very low. But their their act of uh, their act of sexual union. <laughs> uh, you have Abrahamic motility rates, you know. <laughs> but their act of sexual union, according. to... I checked your sample, and your motility rates are like absolutely Abrahamic, you know. <laughs> but they were actually, but he was able to be molded gerim in the neshamos of gerim, right? That's what the Zoyer says. That they, what were the nefashos that they were making? The nefashos they were making were were through their act, a physical act of love and kedusha. Avram recognizing within Sarah the midas amalchus, she recognizing with him the midas of Zeranpin. What was going on there was this incredible hakara that God was sort of doing in the spheros itself. And here were two human beings that were so aduk to Kedusha that the Zivugim were happening. And that, of course, led to what we say brings the whole non-Jewish, the, the non-Jewish world, the converts back to Kedusha. So, you know, you do definitely see that. Now, then, as you say, the hepach of that, of course, would be not Avram and Sarah, but would be, as you say, uh, the the uh, the army the army of 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 Miami children <laughs> and others yeah. that that were pleasuring themselves and in that way causing so much of the power of of what could be uh, kedusha towards I'm, the, I'm, the going to take, I'm going to take a chance and and say that in in my opinion it kind of reminds me of blaming the victim to some extent you know and like oh really. I have, I have a bit of an I have a bit of an. Well, you, I, I am just I'm just taking up what you were what you were saying. Yeah, you that's, said that's that's the, that's the idea. You know, you definitely have a bunch of rabbanim and a bunch of preachers and and a bunch of people who are who um, uh, you know, particularly amongst the Mazarim Tshuva, there's a lot of there's a lot of talk about this. You know that uh, yeah, well, you know, this is Gamma Bris and and uh, you know. Well, this is and, something the Alter Rebbe, you know, uh, the Alter Rebbe pastor. made this. The Alter Rebbe awesome. made this a shtickle campaign of his to sort of reestablish what Pagama Bris meant, right? That there was a, you know, we talk about Rav Tzaddik before. We talk about Rav Tzaddik and 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 his Rebbe the Ishbitzer. Part of what they tried to do is neutralize um, the, the 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 negativity about Pagama Bris, right? And, and to try to turn it into something that ultimately could be seen more positive, especially when those young people were Chayser Bechuva, right? I mean, he talks about uh, that there was... Look, I, have, I, got, I, have to, I have to tell you, in, in my experience, you know, if, if somebody were to ask me, somebody were to ask me, is it possible 
for a young person who isn't married to be Shemer of Okay? I would say, you know, I would say not, unless you're either really messed up or you have a severe hormonal problem or, or, uh, or you just happen to be like an amazing, amazing, amazing super tzaddik. And I have actually, I have actually met people who have told me that they were never plagued to be in their entire lives. I met a one, one or two. Okay, but that doesn't that doesn't go for for you know Ruba the Inji. Um, and I think having a realistic attitude exactly about how what people can put up with in terms of in terms of misguidance and stimulus and 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 frustration and hormones, um, you know, I think I think that does kind of need a serious reevaluation. And and um, it always you know it always seems interesting to me that like Litvaks and Yeshivish people, you never hear them or heard a Yeshivish person. Talk about Pagama Bris. I heard them talk about Lashon Hara. And I don't know if Hasidish people speak all that much about Lashon Hara, but they speak a lot about Pagama Bris. So obviously there's some kind of, you know, there's some kind of. Uh, <laughs> well, it's simply. Going on over there. <laughs> how, much, how much you have, how much you, you allow that particular, you know. Well, again, they are both, I think they are both aspects of Malchus. And again, you know, you're talking about, you're talking about the Peh and the Midas Hayusoid. Those things, I think, are very, very uh, connected with each other on many, many fashions. You know, uh, Rabbi Gluck, I think that we have, uh, in a way, you know, sort of like talked around uh, definitely a number of, of mystical points and uh, just started, I think, the conversation. And I think that's part of, part of as you know, uh, the, the, the wonderful uh, method of speaking about learning, and especially about Sifre, about Kabbalah, is that the subject is really very circular, very circuitous, and it isn't necessarily a linear discussion. So why don't we table this here now, and we'll see if maybe we can pick this up after the Yoyma Klippas, after the Yoyma, after Yoyma Nittel, maybe we could uh, tap into some more. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Thank you.